Thank you for listening to the show. I hope it inspires you and expands your view of what's possible in your journey of wealth creation. My hope is that through a repeated exposure to the ideas and the guests you will find here, your view of finance will change for the better. With that said, there's an important caveat that must be stated. The opinions you will hear on this show are just that, opinions. Please don't misconstrue any of what you're about to hear as legitimate financial advice. Do your own research and don't take anything at face value. Understand that everything you hear on this show is someone else's experience that may or may not work for you. I don't know you, I don't know your situation, so I can't tell you what to do. But I can tell you that the one goal of this podcast is to make you richer, wealthier, and ultimately more fulfilled as a human. I'm glad you're here. Please rate it, review it, share it with the people in your world that matter. And without further ado, enjoy the show. Remind me where you live again. Phoenix, Arizona. Oh, okay. So it's like, is it hot there right now? No, it's great. It's like 50, 60 during the day, 75 tops. Like it's been really nice. It gets cold in the morning. I love having four seasons until we have weekends like this in Nashville where it snows and it's ice. Did I tell you about my Porsche? No, you're selling it. I think I read a post about, are you buying a truck? Already sold. I listed it for sale Friday morning. It sold in three hours and I replaced it with the diesel Duramax Silverado. A dually? Basically, not a dually. Uh, I just didn't feel like I needed the dually. But it's basically the opposite. And I'm so glad that I did because it snowed this weekend and I had no problems. I was able to drive around wherever I wanted. Nobody could stop me. You know, like having a Model S, a Model X, and a 911, I was completely stuck yeah. anytime it snowed. Yeah, yeah. You're fishtailing all over the place. They're no fun. Yeah, pretty much. All right. You ready to get started? I already yeah, hit record, so we'll just leave this into the episode. It's kind of my style. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the interview where we talk crypto. We're going to talk a lot of things, actually. Uh, do you have your Series 65 yet? Or are you still working on it? Uh, I literally am finishing up the content this week, and I'm going to take the test probably next week or the week after, depending on when they have a window. That means you can give financial advice, because by the time this thing airs, <laughs> you, know, you, should be, you should be fine. I'm finally almost to the place where I could be like, I am not your financial advisor, <laughs> even though I am a financial advisor. You're like, this is financial advice, but it might not be financial advice for you. It's like, I can't say that. I just instantly get sued. Man, there's so there's so much cool stuff for us to dive into. When we first met, you know, we were talking about. I think we were doing a crypto training. And you were like, "Hey, here's actually how you set it up and everything." And I was like, "Oh, this guy's got some chops. He knows what he's talking about." But you're into whole life insurance. You're into crypto. You're you're setting up a, a fund for, I believe it's for crypto or is it for NFTs? Yeah, it's going to be crypto and more specifically DeFi, NFTs, and crypto gaming are really the verticals we're excited about. Wonderful. And then you're heading into the RIA space where you're going to be able to give financial advice. You're the first crypto-focused RIA. It's really exciting. We're marrying the old world with the new world and we're forging a new path. Are you going to brand that? I don't know, but I think I probably should. You definitely should. In fact, we should go find the URL, um, first crypto advisor. Once a marketer, always a marketer. You can't, you can't stop. You can't stop the marketing. What, what are you most excited about right now and then maybe take us into like a little bit of that because I've been we've been talking about your fund for a while and I have a feeling that that's going to be up there on the list. But maybe I could be wrong. What's the most exciting thing happening in your world at the moment? Well, honestly, Taylor, I am just most excited about the fact that all of the tools that were once only available to the you know the most wealthy, most elite, most connected, most plugged in, most political, most whatever people in the world are now becoming democratized and decentralized to a place where people can use them to their benefit and learn about them. And understand how the game of wealth and wealth creation is played and wealth management is played at a level that is just unprecedented. And it's still so small. 
you know, when you talk about the ocean of money, I've heard estimates between there's like maybe between one and three quadrillion dollars out there. If you were to liquidate somehow all the assets in the world overnight and just cash it out, that's what it would be. And all of crypto is like two trillion, which is two tenths of 1% at the most conservative. So you're talking a tiny, tiny little pool that's just starting and we're only 10 years in and, and this stuff's just going to continue to evolve and, and create more opportunities for people and do it outside of the traditional banking system, which I believe is unfortunately very corrupt. And uh, it's you know the way things are and it's stable, but it's not going to be forever. I think things are going to very much evolve. You know what's funny is I was um, flying back from Colorado. We went out in December for a ski trip and my pilot started talking to me about crypto. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's amazing. You got to get something. He's like, well, it's just there's a lot of fraud. You know, there's a lot of, of money fraud that happens in crypto. I was like, do you know how much fraud happens in traditional banking? He hadn't really paid attention. It's like a media scam. Like everybody's talking about how there's so much fraud in crypto, but it doesn't even come close to the amount of like overdraft fees that are in the banking system, which could be probably determined as fraudulent. You know, you've heard that discussion before, but people just don't know. Sure. Wells Fargo got nailed for uh, opening accounts aggressively or something. I forget exactly what it was, but like all their commission salespeople had to go to just straight hourly wage or salary because their commission structure was so toasted after a while. I remember Jamie Dimon all over Bitcoin at one point and talking about how it was a Ponzi scheme and then immediately launching a cryptocurrency with Chase JP Morgan. I mean, it's always... They, they FUD it until the moment, when FUD is fear, uncertainty, and doubt, until the moment when they're positioned correctly. And then they talk about how it's the best thing ever, you know, and they're doing it the right way. So they have a competitive advantage in the sense that they're the incumbent. They understand that they need to be involved in these, but they have a very big boat that they have to turn, right? So they need time. So they'll use some of their advantages, like their media exposure, to keep people afraid of the market until they are ready to jump in and then talk about it like it's the best thing since sliced bread. Yeah. Wonderful. This is pump and dump. What's the, uh, I have here on my notes, the giving strategy with Tony Robbins. We can talk about that. So I was um, an affiliate for Tony Robbins those two years when they blew up the KBB launch. I don't know if you remember that. They did yep. one year, it was like they sold 35,000 or some crazy number of, of programs, which, you know, times 2,000. That's, that's quite a bit of money. And we were uh, top affiliate, I think number 25 or 24 the first year. And then the next year we raised a bunch of money, went after it really big coincided with the COVID meltdown and all that stuff. So that's a whole nother story. Uh, but I like to talk about wins, losses, and uh, you know, complete misses. So financially, it wasn't great, but we actually ended up in the top 10, which is awesome. And as a result of that, we got to go and spend time with Tony Robbins, which is really fun. He's a hero of mine. I've been to 15 of his events. He's, he's been a huge influence on in my life. Uh, so my girlfriend and I and a bunch of really great people like JLD and Josh um, from 100 Million Mastermind. I, he's like the LeBron James of email marketing uh, is there and like, you know, Billy Jean, like all these really top people are there and we get to all hang out. And Tony is basically coaching us one-on-one -on -one individually for like five, six hours, which you got to spend a million bucks and wait three years to get on that list if you can even get there, right? He just doesn't do it. So that was an exciting thing. I've never, probably never be able to experience that again in my lifetime, but I'm glad I did because one of the things he talked about really set my life in a new direction because for a while I had been not motivated so much by money. Like I made a bunch of it when I was young, had a million dollar month when I was 26 or 27 in my fund, kind of broke the spell, if you will, of like, I grew up poor. I thought money would solve everything, got to a place where I made a bunch of money and then, you know, realized that wasn't going to make me happy. So I went into the personal development route 
And I realized I just needed to tie the money thing to a thing that I already cared about, which is giving back charitable donations, et cetera. So when Tony dropped casually, he's like, hey, I give away a million dollars a month to charity. You know, he wasn't trying to brag or impress anybody. That's you know one of the things that is real in his life. Like, Holy shit, million dollars a month. Wow. So I started going down the comparison route and starting to realize like, oh man, I'm really setting myself up for failure here. And I said, okay, well, how would I do that if I had to do it? And I can't compare myself to Tony Robbins. He's in his 60s. He's been doing this for 40 plus years. Uh, I'm 35. Well, what would it take for me to give away a million dollars a month in 25 years? And I started working back the math. And I realized that if I started even with a thousand bucks a month, which is totally doable now, and added 37% with inflation per year, that after 25 years, I'd be giving away the equivalent of $1 million a month. So it'd be about $2.6 million a month and 4% inflation in 25 years. So by the time I'm 60, I'd be giving away uh, $2.6 million a month. And I was like, okay, that feels doable. I just have to increase it 37% per year. And it's not a lot in the beginning, but over time it becomes very significant. So I kind of used math to work myself back out of a, out of a little bit of a shame spiral. And that's, uh, that really gave me a new expansionist mentality. Right, because I had been working really hard for a long time, building things, and then I don't know. Some people have that gear, and and I think they get to a place, and then they have to find a new thing that drives them. What got you here will not get you there, and that's what it was for me. It was hearing Tony talk about that, so I appreciate you bringing it up because it's been really near and dear to my heart. That's awesome. I feel like that happens to me too, but I I've noticed a trigger with a certain type. It, it I would love to be triggered by Tony Robbins into becoming more generous. That's a wonderful experience. But sometimes my experience with that is a little bit less productive in that I'll get caught in these spirals where it's like I'm comparing because I'm reading something on social media and there's somebody else who's bragging about it. And I don't know if this happens to you, but it, it sometimes appears that social media has provided great opportunities, but it's also kind of created just a, a social conundrum where it's like nobody's really honest about what they make or what they do and how much they have. They just kind of posture and position themselves and I felt really disgusted by it until I got on Twitter. And Twitter really, I don't know why, but Twitter changed the way I feel about it. Because on Twitter, you've got these real estate hedge fund managers, billionaires, and they never really brag about anything. They're just talking about stuff that they're passionate about. I don't know if it's a Facebook or a meta thing, but it's a certain class of person that tends to just brag all the time. And everything they post is braggadocious. And it's like you're, you're constantly being force-fed their highlight reel. Something about Twitter just seems different, where people are a little bit more down to earth. I don't know if that's my experience or if you felt the same way. Yeah, I think there's an anonymity component too. I feel like everybody on Facebook and LinkedIn specifically yeah, needs to be, be building a personal brand. That's why they're there. And they feel like anything that serves that makes sense. Where on Twitter or Discord or any of these other platforms where there's more of an anonymous, it's like, we don't care who you are. We don't know who you are. Even if you said who you were, we wouldn't believe you. So therefore, if you're not adding value, get the fuck out. That's really what it comes down to. So you're going to see less of that, I think, because uh, nobody gives a on Twitter. Yeah, that's true. Have you heard of Fly Fish Club? No, what is it? Fly Fish Club is a restaurant that's an NFT restaurant. It's hit in Manhattan next year. Here. Okay. Have you not heard this? No, I haven't heard You have this. to be, there's a Fly Fish digital, listen to this, there's a Fly Fish digital token. And it's just, basically, it's a, you can buy this token to participate in a global seafood menu. And they sold 1,500 tokens this month, raised $15 million. And on the secondary market, these tokens are selling for six and a half ETH. Whoa. So a thousand bucks and for six and a half ETH overnight, basically. Yeah. And it's going to, it's like the world, I guess it's the world's first NFT access restaurant. 
Well, and that's what I'm saying. We're we're creating so much access to new opportunities that people just have to dive into. You know, I've got people yeah. literally hitting me up 10, 15, 20 times a week just to consult on NFT project. I had to set a rate and like I set the rate high enough where it'd be like, if they say yes, I'd be fine with it. But mostly I want them to say no and go away because <laughs> I'm just getting bombarded yeah. right now. It's too much. Everybody's got a new NFT idea. I think it's beautiful. And what I'm really waiting for is to see what the best practices are. So we go to launch right. ours, which we will, will eventually, we don't have a lot of guesstimating, right? We, we, we know what works. We know what doesn't. We know what regulatory stuff we have to deal with. And I just, I'd rather wait a little bit and see what is working before I, I don't need to be first is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, I pulled out of my NFT. Um, you were doing? You, I think you, I was, I had it developed and I just, it was, I don't know, six or seven months ago and it was going to be lifetime access to any product or program I ever create plus a year in Nashville once a year for a day long consulting. I do remember a post about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you tried to sell one for like a large price and then you went on and did whatever. I don't know. I was just, I was just going to sell one and it hit me about time the bid price hit like 50 or 60 grand. I was like, I would have to sell this thing for like several million dollars for it to justify. Like that's just too much pressure. Like someone having access to me for the rest of my life. Like what if I don't want to do this anymore in 12 years? Like what if I don't like I'm, I'm done consulting, I'm out. Like, And so I canceled the bid, took it down. And there were several people that were like, "Why? what happened? Like why did you decide? And I was like, I didn't know how to explain it, but. Just the idea of being on the hook for life really stressed me out. And that's the thing is people see the money, they have the dollar signs flash, they don't take the time to really consider all the possibilities that could happen and all the risks that could come out of that. And the greatest risk is that your time is now, you know, being traded on the open marketplace forever by somebody you might not even know who just happens to have rights and ownership to this thing. Yeah. But if it ends up in that pharma guy's hands, you know, the guy that bought the AIDS vaccine and like raised the price by 5,000% overnight and then bought the Wu-Tang album and there was this whole DAO that tried to go and buy it. Do you remember that? They made a no. documentary about it recently. So I forget his name, but uh, it's like Shremco or Shrem. Uh, he, he bought... Um, oh, oh. You, you know what I'm talking I about. I do know what you're talking about. Shrem- bro, yeah, yeah. The name of the, the, the documentary. Anyway, so this, this guy's like kind of a scumbag and he's a well-known scumbag and he's always looking for an angle on how he can you know get over on people. And that, that's what it felt like to me. Like, what if somebody like that ended up with this right to, you know, basically use my time for the rest of my life? Yeah. Dude, I have, I have a, a serious, large question for you. If you are up to the challenge. Please, fire away. Yeah. Can you explain what a DAO is in terms of Web3 and how it's going to replace businesses and boards and things of that nature? Yeah. So when you look at the common corporate structure. I'm talking like Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies. You typically have shareholders, you have debt holders, you have, you know, marketable instruments that are securities that, you know, provide for the financing of this company. You have a board of advisors or trustees or whatever you want to call them, but there's a there's a group of people who typically own these shares or a lot of these shares that have voting rights, et cetera, and they 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 serve some sort of function. You have a C-suite, so you have different CEO, COO, C FO type people who manage the day-to-day operations. And then you have multiple layers of you know, top-down chain of command, essentially, is a, is a typical corporate structure. And their incentive is to beat the quarter. Every single quarter, they want to beat their earnings. They want to increase their profits. They want to you know, increase their shareholder value. They want to make uh, acquisitions, et cetera. So they're all doing these things. And that's generally the way corporations go and have for hundreds of years, since the 1600s, when I believe the first share of stock was sold in Dutch East India Company. So 
this is a revolution in capitalism, I believe, to now have a more autonomous, bottom-up style organization where if you study the way groups work, you'll see like, you know, if you have 10,000 members in a group, 99% of them won't do anything, you know, or maybe like 90% won't do anything. There's kind of like around lurking, you know, maybe 9% will do some stuff. And then like 1% will do an insane amount of stuff. That's like superhuman. Right. And they'll be like the biggest supporters. So when you create this new decentralized autonomous organization, which is what a DAO is, you're essentially creating this bottoms up organization where the best and brightest can shine through and help declare what the vision of the organization is going to be and then rally the voting public who would be the shareholders in this case would be like the uh, governance token holders to vote on those proposals and then get them done and by doing so by raising money through these organizations you're doing it outside the jurisdiction of most uh, regulatory agencies you're creating a free and open market where anybody can participate all over the world in any jurisdiction 24/7 instead of a stock market which is like you know seven hours a day six and a half hours a day uh, five days a week it's 24/7 constant and it's just being fed like a flywheel uh, towards a bigger thing that they're gonna accomplish so for example uniswap is a great is a well-known DAO their whole thing is we want to swap any token for any token we want to provide liquidity for any trade that wants to happen in the crypto world and that's really important service, right? They, they provide a decentralized exchange where anybody can trade for anything or provide liquidity for anything they want, they want to have be traded. And they make fees off of all those transactions, which you know are in the billions. So the really important thing to understand and underscore is like what used to take a country a hundred years to figure out with laws and regulations and trying and failing and you know having all kinds of scandals and figuring out stuff, it took them a year, right? To, to stand all that up and get it right with decentralized workforce around the world and they're all incentivized to make it work because they all own these tokens and they get you know gifted more tokens if they do specific things and there's a lot of different ways you could structure the governance but the reason i think it's going to eat the world is because nobody can move that fast you, you see a giant corporation you're trying to steer this massive ship it takes a long time you can't pivot that quickly and get the right talent on board as fast as as a dow can can you kick people out like the of the governing body like if somebody can you do a hostile takeover of a DAO if you buy all the coins? I mean, in theory, yes. I wouldn't consider myself an expert on DAOs. Just from a high level, I would presume that's possible. But there are also ways to combat that, right? So this is a big issue, like the 51% attack on Bitcoin. They found a way around it, right? They found a way to, to make that not an issue. It's still a risk, but it's much less, much less of an issue. The bigger these things get, the harder that would be to do. Um, so it's really about, you know, they, I've seen things like if you look at the nouns DAO, which is nouns.wtf. I think they did a really good job where they're going to have thousands of these things because there's one a day coming out, but it's going to take years before they have as many as a, you know, it might take 30 years to get to the number of NFTs as like a board HBI club or something like that. And they're always creating more. So the way they did is they did a delayed or slow start governance, meaning they weren't allowed to vote on, you know, crazy changes and issues of certain, you know, types until a certain number of NFTs were sold. Therefore, there's enough voting power for people to actually have sides. Because if it was like, you know, the first 100 NFTs or 200 NFTs, whatever it is, you know, everybody gets a vote. Well, now it's pretty easy to change the entire, you know, direction this thing is going on a dime versus when there's thousands. Now it's a little bit harder to do that. Okay. I have a surprise for you. Oh, great. Um, I got you a gift. Oh, that's nice of you. Thank you. You're welcome. I did not think about it until now. I just bought it just now. WorldCryptoAdvisors.com. Okay. I love it. That that should be your domain. I like it. Thank you. Well, how does Series 65 work? You probably 
can you do global consulting in the crypto space? I don't. I didn't think we had rules for this yet. Yeah. So my understanding is that it licenses me to give advice on securities and charge for it. That's what it does. That's a preemptive strike against the possibility of regulators being saying that cryptos are security. So I'm just ahead of the game. That's all it is. If it goes into another dimension, if it if it if it talk, you know, if they say, hey, we're going to do this under a different regulatory agency or under a different set of laws, we're going to make up a new type of asset class that crypto falls under and how it's regulated, it'll be moot. But the the baseline education is worth it. And it gives people that additional sense of like, oh, this person's legit, that they're an actual financial professional that's just advising on crypto now versus every other Yahoo that's just online saying, I know about crypto, which is not true. So once you have that, you'll be able to start taking money, assuming you get the PPM and everything done. So the reason I got it in the first place is my lawyer said to start this fund, I would need it because of the custody issue. And the custody issue being typically to have an institutional brokerage account for a fund is a pretty straightforward thing. If you're trading options, stocks, cash, what have you, you'd have a third party that's holding all the money. With this case, a lot of that doesn't exist, that infrastructure. So in some cases, I'll have institutional custody. and In some cases, I'll have personal custody over the wallets, the assets, et cetera. And uh, daily, you want to be licensed for that. So that's part of the reason why they they said for me to do that. But it also opens me up to allow to give you know financial advice and and have a reasonable basis legally to be doing that. What opportunities do you see inside of? Let's say that I have twenty thousand dollars. I want to put it into the market. There's not financial advice that you can give me. But if I gave you that twenty thousand dollars, what would you buy in allocation? Yeah. So our fund strategy. Uh, which is going to be called inverse investments. That's our our kind of tag, tag handle or whatever you want to call it. Which it's um, you know investing in the metaverse is what I call it, right? Uh, so inverse investments is going to be focused on a strategy which is mostly DeFi until such time as there's enough stability and capital inflow to take high risk bets. So you are familiar with like a barbell strategy. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those, but it's like essentially a lot of stable cash flow. And then you use that stable cash flow to invest in high risk, high return type stuff. And there's not a whole lot of diversification in the middle. And the strategy being is like, okay, let's say I can pretty safely get a 20% return over a year, split over five platforms. At the end of that year, I'll have at least 20% made up for in cash that I can have being invested. And as I bring more on, I'll begin to allocate more of that 20% into various things. And as they get bigger, I'll, I'll take bigger bets and whatnot. But it's to protect the principle and the baseline and then make sure that we're investing into uh, more high-risk, high-return bets. Like, for example, I, I invested in one NFT thing this year, uh, Neo Tokyo, that I think I put in 130000 It became 450000 in like three months. So more things like that I want to be getting into. Uh, more games like Axie Infinity, more games like Minds of Delarnia, more games like, you know, that are coming out and will take years to build, but it, we can trade the tokens in the meantime. So holding a position, but also trading in and out. We need to hop into some of the discussions I'm having on the NFT front um, with Cryptex and the holdings funds on, like I'm putting money into that and we've got a team of researchers that are- What is Cryptex again? It's just, it's it's an NFT fund that I put together because I want to- Oh, okay, it's your thing. Okay, cool. Here's my like one pager on NFT technology. I know that it's not just art. I know that it's going to change everything about the future and pretty much everywhere. As a real estate guy, we could talk about that too, where it's like, yo, deeds go away. Everything goes away. Everything's... All smart contracts. Yep. All, all of it is an NFT anyways, pretty much. It's just as we can't, we can't regulate that because we're using brokers and things. But my thing is I don't have the time to go deep into the research of everything. And so I found a buddy 
And uh, we're basically, we have a strategy and an algorithm where we're putting together research on projects, project history. And some of it's simple, like you would know this, like just seeing how many followers are on social media for the particular project. Some of it is researching the founders of the developers and seeing if they have previous uh, successful projects. When you look at like, you look at Neo Tokyo, it's like, okay, here's Becker, a combined like 4 million followers. You know, it's probably going to be successful, whatever he puts out. Uh, but I want to find like the brand new stuff. And if you think of angel investing, but fractionalize it into NFTs, I feel like that's what we have a shot at doing. And so if you take $50,000 and you just disperse it across 3,000 different projects, you're going to see some crazy upside because one of those projects is going to be CyberConks. One of those projects is going to be, you know, Doodles or whatever. I think I sent you an NFT actually. Did you get Koodles? I got Koodles and I got, uh, what was the other thing you sent to me earlier? It was on Solana's Baby Apes. Baby, both of those were great. Both of those turned out great. Koodles, I feel like the derivative market, I don't know if you want to talk about this to just steer us out of this, but I feel like the derivatives market is really interesting because when you look at something like superlative apes or koodles, they're like, or mutants, that's where my head starts getting a little crazy because people are like, don't invest in derivatives. And they're like, do invest in derivatives if the mother project is really, really good. Do you have a thesis or a framework that you use, or do you just kind of go after the founders? Think about it this way. The, the supply and demand factor. When there's an amount of demand that's untapped above and beyond what the mother project did, specifically speaking to derivatives, then there's a high likelihood in the sense of doodles. People want to doodle. Maybe they can't afford it. Maybe they were late. They see koodles. Makes a lot of sense, especially if there's additional value and utility added. Uh, they're, they're looking at board apes. They want a board ape. Can't afford a board ape. They're going to look at mutant apes, uh, and so on and so forth. So, anything that where there's additional demand above the supply that was provided and uh, is a lower price, I think will definitely sell out. And if you can be in early for those, it actually de-risks you a little bit because you already saw that the original project that's being knocked off is uh, successful. The other thing to consider, and what I think the smartest people are doing from a risk, basically going to the casino and buying everything on the on the floor, is is basically what people are doing. And what I mean by that is. Anytime a blockchain-powered contract is committed to the blockchain, so like a smart contract is committed to the blockchain, there are bots that will just go out and buy whatever liquidity they can get their hands on. So anytime a new token comes out, and think about what that means, it's like I might be a developer with a Discord building a you know up to a launch. I commit the smart contract, and 30 minutes later, I'm going to go announce that the smart contract is committed and tell my people to do it, and all of a sudden, the bot has bought up all the liquidity. So that sucks for him. But from an investment standpoint, since everything's out there, if you were to do that a thousand times and even put five thousand dollars to work in each one, or a thousand dollars to work, or ten thousand dollars to work in each one, all of a sudden you're going to hit like 10, 15, 20 uber bangers, like just crazy thousand x stuff, and most of them will be junk. And even if you don't, you could, you know, and it doesn't pop off, you could probably get out for a decent amount of your liquidity over time as more people come in, because not nobody will come in, but some people, you know. Some of them just won't go anywhere. So that's kind of a strategy that I think can work really well. And the other thing to consider about the blockchain is that everything is now iterative and built upon everything that's come before. So when a project that does come up across as new and unique and you know brand new utility or something that's never been done before, everybody can hack it and copy it because all the contract and code is right there versus a traditional company where all that's IP and it would be difficult to find all that code, let alone to snag it in two seconds, you know, like you just can't really because it's within their servers. 
So it's, it's a really fascinating space to watch because everything's going to move so much faster. So I think there's absolutely a play for derivatives, provided you understand those two things. It's like, what's the thing they're going to do slightly different? Is there enough demand to be uh, considered like where this thing is undersaturated and still you know could be sold into? Um, how early can you be in those projects and what's your strategy going to be to do that? So is it going to be like the, the old, you know, run and gun research strategy and hope you find the right ones before they're, they're huge? Or is it going to be like a blanket? We're going to buy everything we see that looks like this. So, so looking and parsing for specific snippets of code that show up in other contracts that were unique in the first contract with the bot to go buy all of it. What's your favorite, most recent project that you've gotten into that's not Neo Tokyo? Uh, yeah, great question. Mines of Delarnia. I got a land in that, which was... Mines of what? Mines of Delarnia with a D. D-A-L-A-R-N-I-A, I believe. You can check them out, mindsofdelarnia.com. What I like about it is it's a side-scrolling game where you can dig into these different, like, there's a toxic zone, there's a lava zone, there's an ice zone. You kind of dig into it and you um, you find resources, gems, minerals. You can trade them in for better equipment to dig and mine more so you can go to new levels. You can actually rent out your land plots so that you earn tokens from people who rent them from you. And then as they go on, like, they'll be introducing a whole bunch of new things. So I, I really enjoyed playing the game. I think it's a really well put together game. It's a play to earn model. And their uh, team has been really good at actually delivering uh, so far. And I've been watching it for two, three months now. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. And I just, like I said, just got a, a land plot and I'm going to be playing it a lot more. Actually, it's a game I enjoy playing, which is rare because like you play Axie, it, it's kind of not a fun game. And I think they're going <laughs> to... Here, here's the biggest thing yeah. I want people to come away with. These NFC projects, these gaming projects, I've never seen one come back from the circle the drain moment. Yeah, explain what that means. Circle the drain moment is like, okay, we had anonymize, went up from zero to 12 ETH inside of three weeks, crashed down to like one and two ETH for a while. Now it's kind of stabilized around two, two and a half, three ETH, but it's never going to maybe hit that 10 ETH mark again. It's very unlikely. Like I've seen Kongs go to 200 ETH and back down to 60. And I, I, don't, I don't know that's coming above 100 again. You know, I think all these NFT gaming, you know, Axie Infinity, same thing. You know, Axie's were going for 500 bucks, 600 bucks, 1,000 bucks. A team was costing you like 1,200, 1,500 bucks. And now like they're all dirt cheap and you can buy 10 Axies for 500 bucks, right? So it makes you wonder like, what is the sustainability? Because ultimately in these economies, you can print tokens, you can print assets forever, right? The only thing that NFTs have going for them is that they're limited sets, right? For that contract. I get worried like that, once these things crash, they're never coming back. So you have to kind of think of it like, is there anything you can hold for the long term? Does long-term value investing and any of the principles that worked in the stock market even apply here? Or is it all just you know free-for-all, run and gun, and there's not going to be enough bigger fools to keep propping the price up because everybody can be ripped off and keep their IP getting churned endlessly from that first project to the derivative projects, and then it's eventually just killed, right? It, all that money gets... All the dollars that would have chased that market get split up and then nobody can grab it. Is the reason that that the crash is happening because of the currency attached to them? Like, for example, Kongs is like... Yeah, bananas. It, so when bananas gets toasted, Kongs are not far behind. When WGK gets toasted, Kongs are not far behind. The more vectors you introduce with inflationary principles to them, the less critical mass you can sustain. So now you have multiple vectors by which it's, uh, a project can fail because the token can crash, the NFT can crash, which will drag one or the other down. Yeah. Okay. What is it that keeps, for example, Bored Ape up, whereas a Genesis 
is won't ever get back above a hundred. I don't know that it won't ever. I just haven't seen it yet. You know, there's things that haven't happened, and then there's things that might not happen, right? And I, I just don't, I don't know. Like you were asking about insurance for DeFi, and I, my question back to you is like, who's gotten paid out on these policies? Like it's, it's fine. You can sell as many insurance policies you want. I want to see who actually gets paid out on these uh, before I consider it a viable option. And you know, I'm seeing all these different things happen. So I don't want to get too far afield on your question, but if I could like bottle the magic that is Board Ape Yacht Club and tell you exactly what all the things were, but they were early, they were innovative. They've gotten so much PR and mainstream publicity. You have so many celebrities that have bought them. Same thing with punks, crypto punks. You know, it's hard to mess that up when there's so much of a of a meme attached to it. There's so much of a, a cultural push for it. Uh, whereas CyberKongs, they're, I believe, just as a quality project. They have just as a great team. Um, the value is obviously there, but I don't know that any major celebrities own a CyberKong, you know? That I'm aware of, like Becker does and Elliot does, but I think he even sold it for Neo Tokyo. One of my favorite ones that I got recently is Superlative Apes, and uh, I got them at like 0.1 ETH. They're at 0.5 now, but I think that there's something to like we like what you're talking about derivatives project. What you'll notice about Superlative Apes is it's a little bit of Doodles and it's a little bit of Board Ape Yacht Club. Is both of them together? I think we're going to see a really interesting like mix in the middle where there's like. To, like tertiary derivatives where there's like multiple different things mixed together which is really intriguing to me i don't know how we got off on nfts but you know everything about stuff so i just am randomly asking questions I, I don't know man like i'm just learning like everybody and i'm trying to consolidate this knowledge into a set of principles that i can attack the market with it's really it you know like this is what dalio does except with massive billions of dollars i'm doing it with millions instead of billions but the the idea here is really just to come away with a set of principles where I can synthesize information more quickly and eventually build those into algorithms, which can help me create heuristics that the computer can decide, like what's the best thing to do, and and crunch a whole lot of data very quickly versus me or a team of humans doing it. So that we just hired or we're hiring uh, a buddy of mine I went to college with is actually a he's a PhD and is a coder for NASA and he's going to be doing a lot of our backend number crunching going forward. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, and that'll benefit our clients on the advisory side and on the fund and all that great stuff. So I think that's where it's all going. It's like, who can get to that place first where we have a working model of this market that is effective at predictions and then making those predictions and, and using those predictions. Yeah. Do you have real estate still? Or are you kind of... No, I kind of... Um, I never had a ton, like, you know, compared to somebody like you. I never had a ton. I owned a house for a while, sold it in 2016, bought a new one last year. Uh, but I've never really used real estate as an investment vehicle for a lot of reasons. But the main reason is just because I never wanted to take all the time it would take to figure out deals and manage it and learn all that stuff. But I have a lot of really great friends that, that understand this stuff really well, like Jen and Stacey Conkey and yourself. And I would love to geek out on real estate and just give people some some better tools. You know, like we talked about a little bit offline, you know, potentially working on a project together. And I think one of the main things I would really love to see from your side is just all that real estate knowledge come forth and, and help people with that. Yeah. The, the cool thing about the schedule right now is this is actually my first day back in the Levels brands like full time. I've been backfilling myself on just the, the Evans and Welsh Holdings Company. And one of the things that we're looking at doing is taking the divisions inside of the brands and uh, putting really great products that are organized by division. You're in, you kind of get an inside look at all of that stuff, but we have a, a really good real estate soup to nuts product coming out in April that's developed for people to get into real estate and then we'll have a back-end product for people to scale the problem i have with a lot of the real estate education is people make more money on education than they do from real estate and that just gets weird for me 
especially being an educator, like I love to teach, but I don't necessarily want my main income to be from teaching. I want my main incomes to be from doing. And so we're going to kind of definitely compete with that market a little bit, but I want it to be priced at the, at the bottom of the market so that everybody can access it. Cause we're not trying to just maximize scale opportunity, but we're, we're getting really into commercial real estate right now and just development. Yeah. And I love that. And I'd love to pick your brain because we're talking about a lot of different asset classes. Like how do you, so, so thing one I know is that real estate's not a security. So if you're going to do NFTs for real estate, you'll be well ahead of the game from a regulatory perspective. So that's helpful. Just depending on making sure you don't fall into securities land. So that's thing one. Thing two is you're one of the ones like Jen and Stacey who does, you know, a thousand freaking doors a year or whatever. Plus they have a real estate consulting business where they teach people just to fund and and make that happen first, uh, faster. My curiosity is like, what do you see the market doing with real estate? How much further can we go up? Is there going to be bigger corrections like we've seen in the past where California drops out by 30% or more? You know, is it going to be for somebody who's who's considering, you know, allocating more capital to that? Is there going to be a better entry point or is it just like, hey, the money printer's on, it's going to keep going up forever until they stop? For a single family residential, I think there's going to be a better entry point. So Wealthcap Holdings is the firm that buys all of the residential. And dude, to be honest, we have slowed that down a lot. We're not anywhere close to a thousand doors a year because you just can't get, like, I just got a text from, uh, one of my, one of my buddies, BlackRock's putting no Blackstone, not black. BlackRock was last year. Blackstone is this year, a billion dollars into building single family rental homes. It's just like, you can't really, it's, it's going to be really difficult to compete with all of these guys. And so our buy boxes right now are having to change and they're having to change so much that we're actually slowing down acquisitions. Three years ago, four years ago, you know, we could find our pick of the litter, really great homes. We could renovate them and rehab them beautifully. And we had applications that were, you know, approved and leased before the rehab was done. Now, what we're finding is that people just need a place to live and they want to buy. And so people are moving into Charlotte or Texas or Tennessee from California and a house that is, you know, after repair value might go for $300,000. These people are buying it for 350 and then throwing 50k into renovations because they want to live there. They don't want to rent it, they want to live there. So there's so much capital in the market and so much dry powder everywhere that it's becoming extremely competitive on the single family residential side. And so we've started backing off a little bit just to kind of let the market cool down. We're going to different markets. I don't think that we have a crash coming because a two reasons. A, we're underwriting deals properly. Banks are underwriting people still. They haven't necessarily stopped. We're not back to the pre-Great Recession era where they're just you can have a house and you can have a house and you can have a house, right? Like they're they're actually going through due diligence, angel loans and all that crap they were doing. Yeah, yeah, that's the first thing. But the second thing is guidance says we're four and a half million dollars under demand. And keep this in mind, that's with the current build project. So check this out. This came through my feed today from Market Movers, which everyone, if you're not subscribed to Market Movers, go to marketmoversdaily.com. It's awesome. I get my news from from this service. Brad, public home builders control 2 million lots right now. Just two builders account for over a million lots combined. So what guidance is doing is they're going into looking at population growth from city to city because every city has their own cycles. And they're saying over the next three to four years, we're four million, four and a half million homes short. That accounts for the new builds. We're screwed. Like we are absolutely and totally behind. We're never catching up. We'll catch up in four years, five years. You can see how that's going to probably prevent some a crash, at least 
it's going to prevent a crash overall. But I think some of these cities are probably going to have crashes, micro crashes, because they're going to become overdeveloped and the supply demand is not going to work the right way. But for me, we're going into development and short-term rentals. And I feel like multifamily and short-term rentals is where I'm starting to reallocate a lot of my capital simply because I don't want to compete with someone who is who needs a house so bad that they're willing to overpay by 150 grand. I don't want to compete with that buyer in that market. That's not being a real estate investor. That's just being dumb. We got to chase backwards in the supply in the, in, in the all of the supply chain and that puts us in like we're buying lands, we're going to be building properties and then we'll probably do short-term rentals on Airbnb, VRBO. We've made it through COVID. We can probably survive anything at this point as long as the markets are correct. And so you want to make sure that you're in markets that are not just completely and wildly exposed to economic recessions. Like I think 30A is a bad idea. I think some of these people who are doing short-term rentals in really, really hot markets, but that depend on wealthy people or not even wealthy upper middle class, it's probably a mistake. But I don't know if I answered your question, but that's kind of where I'm at. My head's at with it. Yeah, no, and this is this is good. So I'll even chunk it down a little bit. So you gave me the 20K market you know, and, and what do you do with 20K? And I kind of talked about what we're doing over their fund and, and you can do a version of that, certainly. And it's not advice specifically, but it's just kind of how I think about it. What would a real estate equivalent of that be? Let's say, okay, I'm a million dollar earner. I don't really have a lot of real estate exposure. I see my house has gone up from like 490 to 620 in eight months or nine months. I'm, I'm like, is it too frothy? Is it too late? Do I wait? Do I, you know, what do I do? Or is it just like, hey, just buy real estate? Right. And just dollar cost average into it. And you'll you'll hit a recession at some point, but you can kind of work your way through it. You'll buy some cheaper, you'll buy some more expensive. Like how does it how does it really work in your opinion? Like if you're if your debt service coverage, debt service coverage is above 1.3, which that means like that will be a thousand dollar a month mortgage and thirteen hundred a month gross rent. You're probably gonna be decently covered because especially if you if the market's good. So if you look at Dallas or Charlotte or uh, Oklahoma City or St. Louis, Kansas City, like a lot of these places are, they're stable markets. They're very stabilized. Job growth is great. Population growth. If you're at 1.3 or above, then you're going to be fine because if a market corrects, if there is a real estate crash, you know, you might have $10 million of portfolio that goes down to seven and a half million, but you don't care because your rent is covered and you're just holding the asset. So even if you see a 30% drop, you're okay. That's what you're basically, you're working into the math. It's like, okay, let's say I have a multifamily. My nut is 5K, my rent is six and a half. And even if it dropped to five, I'm still okay to hold through that recession. You don't think there'll be more than a 30% drop. Yeah, correct. And even if there, even if there's a 50% drop, which would be unheard of, I mean, you'd have to, we'd have to go back to 2008. You're still going to be fine because you'll navigate through the cash flow of the property. I think where people are making mistakes right now is you know that that mortgage that's a thousand dollars because of overpricing of the markets. That mortgage is now fourteen hundred dollars, but incomes haven't grown in proportion to the cost or the demand of the houses. And so you have to keep the rent at thirteen hundred or thirteen fifty with a mortgage of fourteen hundred, and people are doing it, and it's not going to work. And the reason that the reason investors are starting to jump out of those markets is because. You don't even have investors in the in the homes at all. You have people who are moving because they they want to live in Charlotte or Nashville or Austin, and they're just buying the houses and they're the ones bidding up the prices of the homes. It's really easy to hit on Blackstone or BlackRock, but they're not necessarily the ones bidding the prices up. It's really people that have to live in the city and they're bidding it up. So I think the opportunity over the next three years is tertiary, secondary, tertiary markets, even fourth tier markets. You know, there's a 
We have a 72 unit under contract right now in uh, Siler City. You ever heard of Siler City? No, where's that? It's like 60 minutes outside of Raleigh, North Carolina. And this is where this is where we're headed because with Zoom and the internet, and it's like peop- the cities and metros are eroding, not physically, but the need for them is going away. And so when people move to Raleigh to take a job, they don't actually move to Raleigh. They move to Siler City in the suburbs of Raleigh. That's where you want to hold real estate right now because it will prevent you from overpaying for the asset and it will incubate your assets with the same job coverage that the city is going to have. So any anywhere 60, 60 minutes away from Charlotte, we'll buy right now because Charlotte's job growth is amazing. It's going to be fine, but we're not paying Charlotte prices for it, which keeps our DSCR high. Okay. So if I'm in Phoenix, I want to be buying just outside of Phoenix. I want to be buying in up and coming areas of Phoenix, you know, as Amazon moves out here and different companies, knowing that even if people don't get jobs that are dependent on location, they're probably going to want to live near a big city, but not right in a big city because they don't want to overpay. And that's good for me. Yeah. hundred percent. I will say this though, as a caveat, I'm liquidating a lot of my single families right now because I can grab seven years of cash flow just because the market's so hot. And so I'm, I'm, I'm liquidating a lot of my single family holdings and what I'm putting it into is development. And so building out condos, we've got 12 houses we're building out in Nashville, 25 houses in Branson, Missouri, which is starting to pop up as a really good vacation spot because there's equity baked in and the yield on short-term rentals is way higher. So for, you know, for guys like you and Becker and people that are in like the crypto space, it's not exciting to get like 6% cash on cash. My short-term rental fund is like on on an IRR, it's like 33% over the next seven, eight years. And that's where you can compete because it's stabilized assets that are doing close to 30% IRR. You can't get that with long-term residential real estate right now. It's really, really tough to do. So that's where that's where we're moving to is I want to build and develop. And then we also eat the appreciation of the land in the process that works directly against the mortgage. Sure. Do you, um, do, you do portfolio size loans or you just do individual loans? Yeah. Portfolios? Okay. The, the short terms are all portfolios. Got it. And then my other question was, uh, do you have a kind of formula where you're like, okay, I'm a seller at this many times cash flow, or I'm a buyer at this many times cash flow? Like, you have a have you thought through that? For for exiting and li- liquidating, it's three three years of cash flow. If we can grab three years in a sale, if you can get three years of cash flow or more, okay, got it. Yeah, we'll go ahead and sell because it's and right now it's like double that, dude. You know how crazy it is. Actually, there's a a deal that I just saw last Thursday. It's one of our deals we were going to hold. We bought it. It's like 35 minutes outside of Charlotte. It's uh, like Gastonia area. And I think we bought it for like 110, 115, put 40, 60, 40 to 60 grand in rehab. And that sucker's selling on the MLS for like 320. When you're faced with that opportunity, it's like me and you are both investors. I love investing into things, but I'm like, the investment at this point is just flipping houses. Like, cause they're not cash flowing that way. Like, they're not cash flowing the right way, you know? So, it's going to be interesting to see like how if if regulation steps in on single family or I wonder if there's there's going to be regulation in terms of like you can't raise the actual sale price of the house by more than x percent each year. I wonder if they'll try to step in and control that. Can they though? I, I don't know if it's possible cuz you have purchasing power declining so rapidly too. Not like you can just say, "Well, we're not going to allow you to maintain your purchasing power, but we're also not going to allow you to increase the price of your assets. That's not going to work. If they can do rent control, then you would have thought that that was not allowed either, but it's like they they really did that. So I think 
it, the government's in an interesting spot right now where it's just like the Federal Reserve, I don't know if they know what to do, man. Like there, we haven't ever really been, we haven't been at this place before. There's no, it's an unprecedented situation. They've never done anything like this. That's why I love reading Dalio's stuff because he's been looking at you know economies for thousands of years and putting all these charts and data together for you to look at and be like, okay, we're here. <laughs> and it's not good. The outlook is not good. We're like in stage five of six of, a, of an empire and stage six is not nice. Did you ever read Jim Collins stuff? No. Um, Jim Collins is like one of my favorite business authors and the dude is like absolutely brilliant. But he's a researcher and so he doesn't actually like run businesses but he consults with businesses he writes books and he's got these this concept called the stages of decline that every company goes through and i've got to tell you dude like when i read this book for the first time i was terrified because when you see what's happening to something that you're intimately involved in and you place yourself on that graph it gives you two things number one it gives you a sheer terror that's like oh my god like i'm the next step is not good but it also gives you a sense of control I've got to say one of the worst parts about reading Dalio is it, it gives you the terror, but you have no control. We have no, absolutely no control. We can't do anything about it. And so it's almost like a double negative, you know, where it's like, I have absolutely no power over the situation, but here's where we're headed. And it's the decline of currency and everything. And China's going to take over. I don't know. Just makes you want to buy guns. That's basically what it's <laughs> Dude. So I've sold the Porsche, bought the truck and put some guns in the back. <laughs> You're ready. <get> some horses. <laughs> I'm ready to go. We just got we moved in as five acres here in Franklin. And I'm like, I feel like a farmer now. I've got five acres. I'm going to do whatever I want. Brand new build? Yeah, brand new build. Congratulations, man. I know you're working on that for a while, so I bet. Yeah, so um, just to flip this back on you, because I like to do that. What are your goals? What are you excited about the next three, five, 10 years? Like, I know you have a family now. I know you're, you're kind of growing in different directions. You're still very young, so I'm curious. Like, what, where do you see the next five, 10 years of your life going? I'm really, really excited about commercial real estate. I think we have such a tr tremendous opportunity to build something we're proud of. Real estate for me has been like a means to an end for a while. I just am taking money from the businesses and dumping it into assets. But more and more, like as I process getting older, there's so many different ways to make money that I want to actually be proud and leave a mark. Uh, that's a representation of my character in the process. And so like, the, the development stuff is really exciting because it's something that can be super proud of. People are really going to enjoy these. They're going to enjoy the projects that we're building, which that's got an energy to it. It's not just being a slumlord or buying up assets that produce a yield, but it's like really well thought through. And I feel the same way about like mixed use. I want to get into mixed use apartment buildings because I feel like that's something that people will really enjoy and they'll find a safe haven in and they'll have memories and moments with friends and I think real estate people who just get in it for the money just probably should do something else. But for me, I'm excited about that. And one day you can drive by in your truck with your daughter and say, hey, daddy built that. Oh, yes, 100%. Yeah, I can't wait for that moment. I'm really stoked to uh, see what happens with the, I guess you could call it uh, cryptocurrency integration, like over the next few years. Like I want to see, I want to see us have a more fair system of currency and trade. Right now, it's where we are. I get into this argument all the time. The, the problem with inequality is not capitalism. The problem with inequality is inflation and the return on capital is never, you, you can't catch that by working harder anymore. So levels of wealth to me represents a democratization of how to get wealthy, how to increase your income, put that income into safe assets. And for the first time in my life, I feel like I'm building something that's you know, whether the money was there or the money wasn't there, it's just like so much fun that I don't care, you know? And that's a fun feeling. 
when you can get to that place, then you make more money because you don't care about making money. And it's kind of counterintuitive how that happens. Yeah. And I think I'm watching my own career and how it's gone. I've always been better at managing money than I have been at earning it in the first place. And I've always gravitated towards people who had already made it from a earning perspective and have, are in the management phase. Like that, that is the sensibility and set of values that, that seems to, I don't know, be attractive to me for whatever reason. So like when I, when I meet people that they're on the way up, I kind of like, okay, let me, let me give them a couple of years to get to their place of stability and then we'll chat, you know? And uh, you're somebody who I've been following for a long time. And it's been interesting to see how you've grown and how much uh, our values now align. And that's, that's awesome. So I'm grateful for that. I have one more question about commercial real estate. Have you considered buying up commercial and converting it into residential? Because the demand seems to be shifting that way. I haven't personally. I have a few friends who have talked about that. But I think it depends on what you define as commercial. Because I'm defining everything, like even our, um, our short-term rentals. I'm, I'm, those are commercial because they're commercial loans. You know, they're basically we're taking a neighborhood of sixty houses and they're putting one loan, one insurance policy on it. Like, and then multifamily would be commercial. I haven't gotten into traditional commercial like office buildings and complexes and things like that. Because I see these massive office spaces that are sitting empty that these owners are never going to fill. Like downtown Antonita is a great example. There's a hundred k a month spot where Whole Foods used to be. Once Whole Foods left, they, it's just a big blight on the neighborhood. It's just a whole block that's not doing anything in this really bustling area of California that people want to be. If they just turned it into the condos, it would work, but they haven't been able to do that for whatever reason. So I'm curious when developers are going to get in, get smart. That's in California. Yeah, start working with uh, the politicians to rezone some of the stuff and then bring it back as, as residential. I feel like. California is like the the last place that that would ever happen to because they don't want you to rezone anything. And most investors that I know don't want to go to the coasts. They're like, because everything is super, you know, slanted against the, the owner because capitalism is evil and we don't like them. I do feel like it's an interesting discussion that we should continue later because we are eventually going to come out of COVID. And I think it's already starting to happen. You know, I, I read something this morning about Pfizer is... Pfizer is basically predicting, and the CDC is, is going along with this right now, that we're going to be out of COVID era like by the end of spring this year. I don't know why. I can't remember why they said that. I also saw that, this is funny, there's a, a new plant-based COVID vaccine coming out from tobacco leaves. Whoa. Fascinating. Isn't that ironic? <laughs> We've had the cure all along. <laughs> it's called cigars. <laughs> it's like, what in the world? Uh, but when we come out of COVID, I th Facebook just leased a whole bunch of new office spaces in Austin. I think businesses are probably going to go back and people say, oh, the, the remote revolution is here and it's here to stay. And I understand that we have a lot of staff that are remote right now and there's some validity and utility to that, but I just don't think that it's going to stick past the next couple of years. I think commercial will come roaring back and some people say it already is. And the problem that we're left with is we still just don't have any any space to build these houses on in the time frames necessary. So you could almost, bro, you could almost just go buy land, sit on it, and become a, a decamillionaire in four years, six years. Just buy land around the edge of the cities. Hundred percent. Yeah. And one of the one of the companies I invested in six months ago is a land business. And we go out, we send letters, we buy land, and we either flip it or we hang on to it. And um, it's one of the more boring things that I do to make money. But man, there's a lot of wisdom in some of the boring stuff that just is not exciting, but <laughs> it makes money and it holds capital. 
Yeah. And it protects, like you said, it protects against inflation and everything else and keeps your purchasing power strong. And I think you're doing the right things. Do you want to talk about where people can find out more about you? Yeah. So if you guys want to check out some of the stuff I've done over the years, we have a few different things. We have a couple of books where we have a free plus shipping offer. If you want to check those out with some additional bonus uh, material. So I have the eight minute mastermind, which is now a bestseller. Uh, talks about how to add at least six figures to your business in five, 10 hours a month using masterminds. So income impact and just really creating communities that, that help grow whatever you're doing. Um, great for bolt on add on as its own business. It's a really good thing. So check that out eight minute mastermind.com. Uh, and you'll also get 50 hours of hot seats. If you want to check that out, I have a cheat sheet for you. I've got um, some incredible additional bonus gifts uh, for you for that. Uh, if you're more interested in the money side of things, which is mostly what we've been talking about today, you can check out my book uh, on uh, wealth management. It's called the eight minute money manager. It's eight minute money manager.com. Uh, some of the folks in the OC group have just been reading it. They're really excited about it. So uh, that's also comes with a bunch of really fun goodies. That's at eight minute money manager.com. And then if you just want to free check us out, you know, find some great content, we are at um, nftcryptocommunity.com. If you want to learn about Web3, if you want to learn about DeFi, yield farming, NFTs, all that great stuff that's coming down the the, uh, the pike, uh, gaming, all that great stuff, we do videos pretty much every week. I think we have about 25 uh, amazing videos, interviews, walkthroughs, cheat sheets, whatever you need to get you up and running safely in the Web3 space. Um, and that's at nftcryptocommunity.com. It's a free Facebook group. I'd love to see you in there and answer any of your questions. Thank you, Taylor, for the platform and for allowing me to be on your show. 100%. We'll do it again soon. Thanks for everything. Thanks for what you stand for and helping the world discover new opportunities. We are kindred spirits in that regards. So see you next time.